So here we go. Uh, my name is Todd Adams. And this is Kathy Adams. Welcome back to Zen Parenting Radio. Today is a conversations with people we love. We're going to be talking to a gentleman by the name of Roman Krisnerik. And uh, uh, for those of you who may not have heard of Zen Parenting Radio, it's a discussion between a spiritual and emotional mom and a logical and practical dad. We have three daughters, ages 7, 10, and 11, and our goal is to give you the resources to become a better parent, but more importantly, to become a better you. And always remember, sweetie, what's our uh, what's our motto? The best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. So we have Roman with us, and um, to give you all, our audience, an idea of who Roman is, Roman is a cultural thinker and writer on the art of living and social change. He is a founding faculty member of the School of Life. That sounds I know. I want to work there. <laughs> in London, and he advises organizations including Oxfam, Friends of the Earth, and the United Nations on using empathy and conversation to create social transformation. He's also the founder of the world's first empathy museum and of the digital empathy library. His latest book is Empathy, and he's been named by The Observer as one of Britain's leading popular philosophers. So, Roman, welcome to Zen Parenting Radio. Well, Todd and Kathy, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too. So uh, I guess I'd like to, you know, we we did a Google Hangout with Roman a few weeks ago, and when we heard that there was an expert on empathy, Kathy and I are like all hands on deck. We're <laughs> That's like, right. We're like excited. We, we got to get this guy because empathy is... Uh, one of the few foundational things that we talk about quite a bit on our show. Well, and especially because where we tend to focus on self-awareness and how that leads to empathy, Roman is, and you know, to to us, the empathy expert. And so he can explain how that creates a difference in the world. So Roman, I have to ask first, how did this become your life? How did this become your message? Like, is there a good story behind how this became your word? Well, it's interesting, actually, that I, I actually used to be a college professor teaching politics. And I had a kind of epiphany where I realized that the way to change a society wasn't just through changing laws and institutions and so on, but actually through creating a kind of a revolution of human relationships on the ground, people understanding each other in families and communities. So once I realized that empathy, in a way, that understepping into the shoes of others was a key to social change, I ditched my job as a college professor, but that's really on the surface. If I go a bit deeper, actually, when I was a child, my mother died when I was 10 years old. Uh. And one of the things that happened to me after that is that I, I kind of lost my empathy. I, mm. um, I became very distanced from other people in my family, friends and strangers. You know that feeling you sometimes get when you can, you're sort of standing outside yourself looking down. You can see yourself operating the world. That's kind of how I was. And Absolutely. I, you know, I kind of lost that sense of, uh, you know, f you know, crying very much or even laughing very much. And in a way, what I realized, in fact, just recently, um, was that my interest in empathy has been driven by an unconscious desire to recover the empathic self I'd lost as a child. Um, so I think we're always our motives are always a little bit they can surprise us sometimes. They surprise me, certainly. Oh, I love, I mean, I I thought there might be some kind of story. And again, every story, it's different for everybody. But very similarly, that is, you know, my experience as a child was I was very, very sensitive and I kind of shut that off to protect myself. And so that kind of built, you know, again, there's always a longer story, but that 
turned into why I wanted to focus so much on self-awareness is so people didn't have to lose that. And Todd, yours is very similar to Roman's. Yeah, I kind of shut my emotions down because um, my parents were having kind of a nasty marriage. And in order to protect myself, I needed to um, shut myself down to get through the days. And uh, while that served me in the moment, it is not serving me as an adult. And it's something that I'm working through. So the question that I have for you, Roman, is there's um, a, a term that sometimes gets thrown out there that's called a quantum moment. And that is like a shift that happens in a moment that you'll know, like, this is when things changed. My question to you is, as empathy came back into your life, did that happen in a moment? Or was it was it a baby step way back towards it? That's a really interesting question. Okay, let me tell you my instinctive answer is that there was a quantum moment on a Thursday afternoon about four or five years ago, actually, where I was walking down the street around the corner from where I live in Oxford, England. And there was this homeless guy who I walked past for years. He used to kind of walk around in bare feet in the snow and mutter to himself in a kind of crazy way. And... On that day, I stopped to talk to him. Mm. And I'd never thought that I actually had much in common with this man. That's why I'd always walk past him. But I, I stopped and talked to him. And I discovered many things about him. But I completely, our conversation blew away my prejudices. I just thought he was this crazy homeless guy. It turned out he had a philosophy degree from Oxford University. Wow. And we, d- we developed a, a friendship based on our interest in moral philosophy and pepperoni pizzas. <laughs> um, I mean, he was also a paranoid schizophrenic with a history of violence and been put, put in uh, psychiatric care 17 times under the government's Mental Health Act. Right. But, you know, that, that was all part of the story. And so it was a kind of a, 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 kind of a leap of, of understanding for me, a quantum moment, because what I realized was that I had as many prejudices about strangers as anybody else, even though as I was a so-called kind of empathy expert, even back then, you know, I think we're all carrying all these stereotypes of others around with us. And the great challenge of life in the 21st century is to blow away those stereotypes, particularly in an age when we're, we're in an era of us versus them conflict, whether it's between rich and poor or people of different religions or Islam and the West and all this kind of stuff. I love that story, Roman, because what I found in myself and what I tend to find with people that I work with and teach is that usually when we have some kind of huge fear, if it be about a culture or a person or a country or whatever, there's some kind of story behind it, something we've been taught that maybe we were taught when we were a child that was never true to begin with. And that really that, and again, that's why I always bring in self-awareness is, you know, find out why you have this kind of fear or this anger or this hatred. Where does it come from? And as soon as you meet that experience, like meet somebody that you maybe have been afraid of or you didn't understand or you thought it was me against them, all of a sudden everything shifts because we're so similar in in the majority of ways. And is that is that what you teach people too? Is just to, you know, maybe you don't use the word fear, but just to kind of step over that discomfort and start to get to know people a little better? Absolutely. I'm a great uh, fan of nurturing curiosity about strangers because we are held back by fears and prejudices and stereotypes and all sorts of assumptions that, as you say, often come from childhood. I mean, the way I think about it is this, is that, you know, the great Greek philosopher Socrates said, to be lead a wise and good life, you need to know thyself. And we've traditionally thought that that's been about introspection, 
self-reflection. And of course, self-reflection is vital. But I also think that one of the ways we discover ourselves is through or one of the ways we get self-understanding is by stepping outside ourselves and discovering the lives of other people and other cultures. So those conversations with strangers across barriers of age or gender or religion are really vital ways for us to understand who we are and to, in a way, peel away those fears uh, and those assumptions and challenge them. So, um, you know, my advice to anybody listening is to have a conversation with a stranger at least once a week and, you know, get beyond the usual chat about the about sport or the weather and talk about the stuff that matters in life, whether it's love or parenting or religion or whatever turns you on. Um, yeah, have conversations that have a little more depth to it. Um, and it's funny because uh, in this day and age, I think it becomes uh, less and less likely for two strangers to converse while waiting in the line at the train because of our cell phones. And I, I, and I am as guilty as the next guy. So this is not me judging everybody else as much as it's me judging myself. But I even notice I'm on your website right now. And I don't know if you wrote this tweet or if it, maybe you retweeted it, but it talks about 10 ways technology can build empathy. Now, I haven't clicked on that yet, but I'm curious what that, do you have any tips or tidbits? Because uh, we are living in this digital age. How, like, I feel like those two terms are almost a paradox. Yeah, like they crash so into each how other. how can you bring these two ideas together? Yeah, I think empathy and technology is a real challenge. I mean, the tweet that you saw there actually relates to a, a project I run called the Empathy Library at empathylibrary.com, where there are reviews of books and films all on the theme of empathizing, whether it's a, a book like To Kill a Mockingbird or a film like City of God, which is about um, living in the shanty towns of Rio, sort of poor kids living there. Um, but of course, online, the real question is, can we have conversations with strangers, I think, um, in ways that are meaningful. And on the surface, you think we could look, there we are, 2.7 billion people are online, this should be amazing opportunity for empathic connection with people from different cultures, for instance. But does it happen? No, of course, because who can tweet their greatest emotions in 140 characters? Exactly. Uh, you know, everybody's busy watching YouTube videos of cats turning on <laughs> lights you know, jumping up and switching on light switches. Um, but there is hope. Let me give you an example. There's a wonderful project um, where some Brazilian teenagers wanted to learn English from native English speakers, but they didn't know any. So they got in touch with um, a care home in Chicago where there's some uh, elders in Chicago, you may know this story, who were able to start teaching them English um, on Skype. And that people in Chicago were lonely living in their care home and the teenagers wanted their skill of um, of being native English speakers. And not only have they learned English, but they've made wonderful friendships and it's all happened online. Yeah. So I think we just need to teach ourselves to use the technology. I don't think there's anything wrong with technology ourselves. It just we're absolutely hopeless at using it for empathic connection and we need to be trained up in it. Absolutely. Uh, Roman, there was, there's this website that I learned about, uh, about I think it was last October, called World Pulse, worldpulse.com. And basically it was created for women in third world countries for them to be able to blog about their experiences so people could go on and read their about their experiences from, you know, that first person place, like this is what's happening to me. And what, and again, even women getting access to the internet to blog something, that in itself is a whole 
whole nother story. You know, that the difficulty behind that is incredible. But the women who do get the access, they're able to share these things that are happening to them that we may not even know about. Um, and for them to reach out and for people to comment or to say, I hear you, has shifted their life immensely, not just the that it's necessarily, you know, people who are reading the blog are actually going over there and making the change or giving them anything, but for people to be heard and validated and to be able to share who they are, that in itself changes the way that they interact in the world. And so that's just another example of technology. It, it connects us in a way where we can actually share our story. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating example. And it makes me think of a wider point, really, that I think a lot of our um, social media apps are designed to connect us with people who are quite like us, yes. you know, share the same music, same food, interest, films, politics, whatever. And the next generation of social media apps, I think, have to connect us with strangers. And people are starting to do this, uh, you know, develop empathy apps and so on. Um, so but that, I think, is the future. And I hope my kids, my six-year-old twins will be empathy revolutionaries online and start developing those technologies because uh, I don't have the competence, but I hopefully, hopefully they will. <laughs> um, I want to back up a little bit because I think I have a pretty good understanding now of what empathy is, but I think there's a lot of people that don't. So Roman, uh, the difference between empathy and sympathy, because I remember as a younger person, I never understood the difference between those two words. And just to kind of get maybe some people who think those two ideas are the same, can you give us your best uh, distinguishment between those two? Yeah, and they are absolutely different. So say you're walking past a homeless guy on the street and you look at him and you just feel sorry for him or pity or something like that. That's sympathy. In psychological terms, it's an emotional response, but one that isn't shared. But if you walk past uh, this person and really make an effort to step into their shoes and see things from their perspective, that's empathy. You're trying to understand their view of the world. Sympathy doesn't require that. You can just sort of stay outside, as it were, and not really step into their shoes. So empathy, I think, is a bit more challenging because you have to take their perspective. But ultimately, the rewards are greater because, you know, often we don't understand other people's perspectives. And it really matters. Just to give you an example with my kids, um, you know, when my twins were about one and a half before their natural empathy had kicked in. A common situation was where my son would be crying and his sister would comfort him with his with her favorite toy dog, mm. which was a, a sympathetic gesture, but not much use to him. Right. Interesting. Um, but about a year later, when they were two and a half and their natural empathy had kicked in when he was crying, she would then go and comfort him with his favorite toy cat. Mm. And that that's the leap of empathy. That's understanding that other people have views different to our own. Oh, that's so big. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, so big it's on so, so big many levels. Because it's so simple and it's memorable. Like I can attach to what Roman just said. Well, and, and not only that, but what I hear from people all the time is there's they have this disdain for other people because they're not doing what I'm doing. Why can't someone think the way I think? Why doesn't everyone do, you know, choose the lifestyle I choose? And what you just said in that, you know, in the childlike way, we have to understand it's not about everyone being like us, that the way that we love other people is through the way they feel love and not necessarily, you know, there may be a difference there. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. And another way I think about it um, is with respect to what's called the golden rule. So everybody knows this idea, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Now that assumes that other people have the same interests as you. Yeah. And that's why I often talk about the platinum rule. 
do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Yes. Which I think is is getting at that deeper empathic immersion in other people's point of view. And so you don't just assume that other people have the same perspective as you. And it's powerful in terms of the way children relate to each other, parents relate to each other, or Israelis and Palestinians relate to each other when they're at war. Yes. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because within the um, the RSA video, there is a part in there where it says it won't stop until we talk. And you just talked about Israel and Palestine. Can you explain what that means? It won't stop until we talk? Yeah. So there, there is a, a video on YouTube of mine called The Power of Outrospection, spelled O-U-T-R-O, outrospection. And in it, I talk about a wonderful grassroots peace building organization called The Parent Circle, whose motto is it won't stop till we talk. And what they do is they bring together Israelis and Palestinians who all have something in common, which they've all had family members killed in the conflict. And they bring them together for story sharing, where they share uh, their pain, uh, as it were. But they also have wonderful social projects. One of them uh, that I talk about in that video is called the Hello Peace Telephone Line. And it operated for several years. And um, the way it worked was that there was a free phone telephone number put up all over Israel and Palestine. And any Israeli could call it and talk to a Palestinian stranger about whatever they liked for half an hour. And any Palestinian could call and speak to an Israeli. And in its first five years of operation, over one million calls were made on that telephone line. Unbelievable. Now, just imagine if we set up similar lines on Skype or other means uh, in our own countries, whether it's between rich and poor or Republicans and Democrats or you know, people of different different ethnic uh, and backgrounds. These are the conversations we really need. And that's the connection we're looking for. And that's, I mean, like you said, that's what changes everything. And I'm glad that you brought up our political system because one of the things that you talk about is that we obviously have to have empathy for the homeless man on the street or empathy for the people who are down and out. But we also have to develop our empathy for those who are in power. So can you explain why that's so important? Yeah, I think that empathy shouldn't just be limited to the down and outs or in the family. Uh, you know, Mahatma Gandhi famously said that we need to empathize with our enemies. He said, you know, he was a Hindu who said, I'm a Muslim and a Hindu and a Christian and a Jew. Mm. And I think one partly needs to do that to create tolerance in society. But I think also that, you know, if we're going to tackle something like global warming, for instance, uh, if you don't step into the shoes of if climate change activists don't step in the shoes of climate change skeptics or oil company executives or what, things like that, we're really probably not going to get anywhere very fast. So I think that those step stepping to other people's shoes matter, too, because we need to understand everybody's mindsets. I've just I'm just starting a new project launching in London. We're going around the world in September, this coming September called the Empathy Museum. And, um, and anyone can go to it at empathymuseum.com to the website. But one of the projects we're doing is we're having an empathy museum bus going around London to start with, and then it'll go to other places too. And we're going to take it to the financial heartland of, uh, of London outside the Bank of England and the, and the, and the big banks who have been responsible for our global economic collapse. And we're going to ask the bankers to come uh, in there and, and have conversations with people from different social backgrounds. But it's for mutual understanding so we all understand what motivates each other uh, where we where we're coming from and i think that's how you start rebuilding society beautiful um that's awesome and you know 
one thing that I love about what you're saying is not only do you have these great ideas, but you're actually implementing things. Like what Kathy and I talk about is you're walking the walk. It's one thing to have a wonderful message and communicate it. And that all by itself, all alone will help change things, but you're also taking action. And I'm in, you know, deep admiration of you. I mean, just the idea that there's something out there. Called an empathy museum. Called an empathy know, museum. It's it. wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. It. Well, it's a funny thing. You know, I spent most of my time sitting in my study writing books and, um, and then I look at, on the page at the kind of things I'm writing about social connection and empathy. I think, what am I doing in here? I've got to get out a bit more. Yes. And, and even though, truth be told, it doesn't come naturally to me to run organizations and start empathy museums and empathy libraries. As a writer, I've had to learn that if you want to communicate ideas, it's not enough to do them in a book. You need to be absolutely multimedia in every sense. I mean, doing podcasts like this, doing animations on YouTube, but doing things on the street, in with schools, talking to governments, uh, all sorts of things. So, uh, but I'm a great fan of experiential learning. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci famously said, experience is my mistress. Yes. And I think, you know, we can all, we all need to get off the screen a bit and uh, get out into the world and um, create some of these conversations that I think we desperately need to have. I so agree. And one of my favorite words that I use whenever I teach is we have to practice what we know. And I specifically use the word practice because we don't always do it great or we don't always do it well, or maybe we, you know, have a misfire here and there, but so many people carry knowledge about what we should be doing, but we just talk about it and we don't practice it. And so, but I feel like that word practice takes some of the heat off of it where we don't have to do it perfectly, but you got to put, you know, as Todd said, you got to walk the walk. And with that said, Roman, even though on this show we kind of pretend we're a parenting podcast just to get people in, <laughs> um, but at the same – you know, and, and it's really about self-awareness and empathy for all of us. But at the same time, for the parents who are listening, how do we engage our kids in this message of empathy early? Like what what ideas do you have? Like that wonderful story that you just told about your kids, you know, how they develop that empathy. But what's something that we – you know, that can help parents with developing empathy in their children? Well, I think the first thing parents need to realize is that you don't teach empathy to kids. You model it. You know, you practice it with your husband, wife, partner, with your children themselves, because that's how kids learn by seeing model behavior. Um, that's, the, I mean, the, the obvious starting point. But actually, I do think you can start giving them tools. I mean, as I mentioned, my kids are five or they're, actually they're six now. And um, I teach them about this distinction between the golden rule and the platinum rule, which I mentioned earlier, and they completely get it. I will ask them, is this a platinum rule situation or a golden rule situation? Because they understand that and, you know, other people don't have the same views of themselves, but it's great giving them a language, tools for talking about these things. That's really important to talk about the difference between empathy and sympathy, I think, is a wonderful thing. Um, and. You know, I'm I'm always, you know, if I even I sat down and watched the film of Pocahontas with my kids the other yes. day and we talked about empathy in relation to it. You know, there were colonizers coming over from Europe to the Americas and we asked, you know, how do you think the, the Native Americans, the indigenous population felt about this? And it's not just political correctness. It's about human understanding. And um, I think we can all start having those conversations with our children. And um, but I think there's probably one other thing is to recognize that. So often we fail to understand our kids. And this is something that we spoke about a bit when we did the, our conversation a few weeks ago, um, that, you know, we misjudge them just like we have prejudices or assumptions about 
the homeless guy we walk past down the street. It's the same with our kids. Do we really understand what's going on in our minds? And we need to be adventurers to try and discover that. And of course, it can be difficult, you know, talking to your a 14-year-old teenage daughter or son who doesn't actually want to talk to you. Um, it, it can be a challenge, but I think that has to be the goal. And and really, that is it, you know, what we try and t- uh, what we hope for people and obviously for ourselves is that we have this definition of parenting, not that we're trying to make our children a certain way, but that our job is to learn who they are and to, um, you know, keep even when they're, like you said, you know, the 14 year old that is more difficult to access, that we figure out new ways to connect and communicate. It may not be the same way when they were nine, but that it's our job to re- keep reconnecting and like you said, practicing that platinum rule with our kids. What do, what can I do to reach them? What will work for them rather than they should be doing what I think they should be doing? It's such a huge distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that as parents, you know, we, we're always learning from our children and as, as I do from mine and, you know, we can, I, you know, I, I kind of think, you know, something I've recently started with my kids is having little conferences with them where we all sit around and you you get to speak when you're holding the Tibetan singing bowl. And <laughs> uh, it's absolutely lovely. I mean, it's it sort of breaks down after half an hour sometimes. It's, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> but those conversations are the beginning of us all learning to be people. I mean, if you listen to young people today, oh God, I say young people, I sound awful and old. I'm only 44. But uh, I, I listen to them on the phone and I think, they don't know how to talk to each other on the phone. They don't even know how to say goodbye. The conversations end mid thought, yes. you know, so often. And I, I, so I look at my kids and they, I need to teach them how to actually have a conversation where the other person recognizes that, that they're being listened to. Because as a parent, one of the things we can teach our kids is that there are two keys to empathic listening. You listen out for somebody else's feelings and you listen out for their needs. And if you can teach kids that that's they can do that in all their conversations. What's the other person thinking? What are they feeling? They're going to be opened up to empathic understanding. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, so uh, we're going to uh, get a little silly here at the end of this interview. We like to ask a few <laughs> questions. So bear with our silliness, Roman, uh, but we're just going to fire a few at you. Um, sure. Pretty short. So Star Wars or Wizard of Oz? <laughs> Star Wars by Miles, but not Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> Um, who do you most admire, dead or alive? Oh, dead or alive. Leonardo da Vinci. There you go. Um, what is something that you can do today that you could not do a year ago? Sing. I started singing lessons. Do you want to practice right now for us, Roman? (laughs) No, not really. I love it. Um, this is a good one. I'm glad we're asking this question to you. What do you know for sure about all people? that we are all struggling against our own prejudices. Mm. Very good. And then last but not least, what word brings you peace? <laughs> For some reason, the word pizza came into my head. <laughs> it's, it's safe to say nobody has ever answered pizza to that I know, question. I know. I thought you were going to say empathy, but... I know. I'm like, we're setting him up to yeah, like, right. give the word... Yeah. No, I pizza. think it's because I'm, I'm in about 20 minutes, I'm going to be going to uh, cook pizza for my kids. So <laughs> if I can do it well, it will bring peace to the, to to the, the kitchen. Home. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so that's my answer. Pizza is peace. <laughs> so Roman. And peace how, is pizza. That's right. How do our listeners uh, learn more about you? What can they do? They can have a look at my book, uh, Empathy, Why It Matters and How to Get It. They can go to my website at romancrisnaric.com. That's R-O-M-A-N-K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C. 
or visit my new Empathy Museum website at empathymuseum.com and watch the videos about the art of stepping into other people's shoes. Well, that is awesome, Roman. I can't say thank you enough. It's, we probably could have gone another half hour or an hour, but we and wanted to be respectful of your time. We did. And I just want to thank you so much just personally for what you're doing in the world because it means a lot to me personally, but you're a world changer. These are – this is – I could not agree with you more that empathy is the key to all change. So thank you. Uh, well, that's very kind of you. And um, well, we're all engaged in the, in the struggle for to create human understanding. So thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.